Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, the COVID-19 virus is rapidly spreading across Sub-Saharan Africa. How are African governments and their international partners responding? And the United States and Gabon have assumed the co-secretariat of the Friends of Gulf of Guinea Group. What are the prospects for this multilateral initiative to address the threats of piracy, armed robbery, and other illicit maritime activities? Plus, we discuss the implications of rising water temperatures off the coast of Angola. How can African countries adjust or adapt to the effects of climate change? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. The COVID-19 virus is present in nearly all of sub-Saharan African countries and every day brings new reports of infections. Until recently, most countries in Africa had escaped the worst of the coronavirus pandemic. Now cases are rising across the continent. Many countries like South Africa are taking similar precautions as the rest of the world, cancelling international flights, closing schools and land borders. Are African governments prepared to manage this health, economic and political crisis? Joining me to discuss COVID-19 and other issues is Max Barrick, Washington Post Nairobi Bureau Chief, Nina Fogwe, a political and programs officer at the British High Commission in Cameroon, and Witt Somweber, director of the Stevenson Ocean Security Project at CSIS. Just a quick note to our listeners, we recorded this episode remotely for health and safety reasons. We apologize in advance for the sound quality. Also, news is moving really fast right now, so a few things may have changed since the taping of the show. Max, let's start with you. You've been covering uh, COVID-19 for The Post. What is your sense of how key countries like Kenya and Nigeria are doing, both in terms of responding to the crisis, but then communicating to their publics? Well, we say that Kenya and Nigeria have, have acted decisively and very early, enacting a number of travel restrictions and movement restrictions um, and, and talking about social distancing. But the truth is that we really don't know how widespread the virus is in those countries or, or in many African countries uh, because there's so little testing that's happening. And, you know, I would share one anecdote, which is that I've been trying to get comment from the Kenyan Ministry of Health for a week now, and I've been told that the only person who can comment to me is the health minister himself, and he has not been able to provide answers on some of the most basic questions, like how many ventilators are in the country and how much funding has been requisitioned for the response. So I think that there's a lot that we don't know, which makes that question kind of hard to answer. Yeah, I, I wonder if we're still working our way for the health crisis part of this, which will be enduring, and then there's an economic element, and then clearly there will be a political dimension as well. And I, I published a piece with Eric Olander, who's the managing editor of the China Africa Project, and we tried to at least start the conversation on the political ramifications. And I think, as you said, some countries have been very good about communicating. I think South Africa has been exceptional. Cyril Ramaphosa has done a number of speeches. He and the opposition have come together and talked about how they're going to be united to address this issue. Other countries are not doing as well. Uh, Nigeria actually 
they finally pressured President Buhari to make a statement, but he had been at the receiving end of a lot of criticisms for not being able to do it. And I wonder, Max, we've got 18 presidential, legislative, and municipal elections planned for this year, including in Ethiopia, which I know you follow very closely. Any thoughts? I mean, this is early days, but how do you think it's going to affect voting? How will autocrats and others use public health guidelines to weaken their opponents? Sure. Well, I think first on the point of of presidential communication, there have been some pretty low points. For instance, Uhuru Kenyatta here in Kenya uh, had a much awaited address as, as things begin to ramp up here, but he used it entirely to speak about how Google was partnering with a local telecom company to use uh, its kind of Google Loon technology to ensure that people had access to 4G internet while not talking about any of the social distancing or health implications at the beginning of this. And and others may have seen Magufuli in Tanzania talking about how the blood of Jesus Christ will protect people against the virus. So there, there have been some some pretty low points. And I think that there could be more with election delays, but I do think it's early days. Um, I think what we are beginning to see are the use of of certain speech gag laws and surveillance laws to to clamp down on what people are saying um and you know some of that is warranted in in keeping misinformation low but you know there are also internet shutdowns in in many african countries uh, including in ethiopia where where millions of people can't get access to information about the outbreak yeah, this just happened in Guinea. They just had their referendum on the Constitution, which would allow President Conde to go for a third term, and they shut down the internet for at least 22 hours. So not only did it have implications for the quality of that election, but Guinea has two outbreaks already, two confirmed cases, and this is a critical time to be delivering public health warnings and public health messaging. I want to talk just briefly about perceptions of the international's response First, you know, China was really under the microscope and there was, you know, an uptick in xenophobia, not attacks, but certainly anger around Chinese flights landing in certain international airports. And that seems to settle down for now. But I don't have a great sense on where the narrative is on the U.S. or the U.K. or the EU and how they're responding. And Nina, I thought maybe it would be helpful if you could just walk through some of the steps the U.K. government has taken to respond to the pandemic in Africa. The FCO is closely monitoring the coronavirus throughout the world, of course, and in Africa in particular, through its diplomatic networks. And it is working with other international partners to help Africans, uh, UK citizens, especially those at greatest risk of exposure to the virus. A lot of this kind of international help or funding would have gone through the EU because of Brexit, all of this is changing. So right now, the UK is still trying to come up with a holistic approach to approaching uh, pandemics in Africa, especially with the coronavirus. But however, the UK is working with the World Health Organization and other G7 countries to ensure that most of um, its partners in Africa um, are ready for all um, eventualities. Unfortunately, there has uh, been some criticisms by maybe WHO, who has um, criticized the UK's approach, especially in regards to Boris Johnson's herd immunity approach that he wants to use. 
But I think the UK government, because of all the pressure of Brexit and the fact that it's no longer part of uh, the EU uh, portfolio in how they are doing everything possible to make sure that they follow general guidelines and encouraging local governments to do the same. That's really helpful. I, I feel like here in the US, I don't have as much visibility on what uh, the UK is doing. So that's really useful to hear you know, your, your thoughts and to share that with our audience. Max, any thoughts on the U.S. response? Anything you'd like to see uh, the U.S. government do uh, in terms of the response to the pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa? Well, I think it's a bit tough when the U.S. is facing a much bigger outbreak, at least bigger known or confirmed outbreak than, than the entire African continent is now to talk about what the government should be doing here but, you know, as we watch Jack Ma from China really lead the response across the continent here, really, and really even overtake most African governments in the scope of, of what he's doing, I think that the U.S. could or should be incentivizing its own billionaire class to be doing more domestically and internationally, and that would include sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, Jack Ma is the sort of the big winner right now. I mean, he's getting tons of coverage and uh, really positive reviews from from Abi and from others. And yeah, I think you're right that whether it's the U.S. government or it's our our billionaires or uh, I saw that she's not a U.S. citizen, but I saw Rihanna just uh, dedicated, donated some money. I mean, there's ways that we could be helpful here. Yeah, I mean, Judd, if I was to get tested here in Kenya, which I haven't been, um, I'd be relying on Jack Ma to do that. Um, and that's, that's a huge win, obviously, for him in a soft power way, but also just in, a, you know, in a human way. Um, you know, it's a great thing to have done. Yeah, well, stay tuned. I, I know that there, we're going to continue to cover the COVID-19 pandemic on the podcast, but also you can go to our website. We've been putting out daily graphics, commentaries, uh, videos. So uh, that will be a mainstay of our coverage over the next weeks, months, however long it takes. I want to move to our second topic, which is about a important initiative that has probably the worst name you could have, the G7++ Friends of Gulf of Guinea Group. I mean, that's the most bureaucratically painful name I've ever heard, but it is actually really important it started back in 2013 by the UK, the G7, and regional governments. And the idea was to help secure the Gulf of Guinea against threats of piracy, armed robbery, and other illicit maritime activities. Gulf of Guinea is one of the most dangerous in the world because of widespread cases of piracy affecting a number of countries in West Africa. Piracy in the Gulf of Guinea has become a global concern. Stealing oil cargo and kidnapping foreign nationals for ransom. Heavily armed criminals attack more than 100 vessels every year. The United States and Gabon have now assumed the co-secretariat of the Friends of Gulf of Guinea, also known as FOG, another terrible acronym, and they'll have that after the calendar 2020. And since, Wit, you spent a lot of time thinking about this, you may not know this initiative, but I, I thought it would be useful to get your thoughts on this multilateral approach, especially because I have not been to a meeting recently where the U.S. has not talked about how important this is to them in terms of their engagement in Africa. How do you, how do you think about this kind of engagement when it comes to protecting our oceans? Hey, Judd, thank you. It's absolutely critical. I, 
The oceans uh, don't care about political boundaries and nor do the fish that swim in them. You know, one of the greatest challenges that we face uh, from climate uh, in the oceans is uh, migration of ecosystems um, and the fish that make up those ecosystems uh, towards the poles. So I think we're going to have a situation over the coming decades where already stressed management systems and programs um, are going to be stretched further as these resources shift uh, and where they're found and and where they are being exploited. And so there's going to be a, an already intense competition is, is going to be exacerbated by competition across existing political boundaries. So the more that you can bring a multilateral approach to uh, resource management, especially in a region as complex as the Gulf of Guinea, uh, I think that's that can only be to the good. Nina, the, the UK has been a key driver in this initiative. Do you have anything you want to add to Witt's comments uh, about the initiative, uh, how the UK sees uh, its evolution? Yeah, so uh, generally, I think, well, the, the UK has uh, done a lot to support this initiative, but I think some of its efforts can actually be redirected to support um, local efforts on land, for example, like um, in terms of changing attitudes towards reducing piracy and building legal capacity to persecute criminals, because that's one of the major issues that most of these countries face. The, they do not have the capacity to actually persecute the criminals that they arrest and the and the, and the catch. And also the UK government is doing a lot in terms of ensuring or promoting political and economic stability in this region. In Cameroon, for example, with the Anglophone crisis, there's a lot of instability. And because of this instability, there are no alternatives for people to do work, to engage in regular activities that they would have engaged in. So this, of course, promotes piracy. And one of the things that I think is fantastic about this initiative is that, at least for the U.S. government, almost everything we do when when it comes to Africa has been about China and great power competition. And this initiative really has nothing to do with China, right? It has to do with a partnership between African governments and their external allies to respond to real threats to African lives and livelihoods. And, and we'll talk about that a little more in depth in the main topic. But I just think it's important to talk about here because it's a much smarter investment of our resources than spending a lot of hot air about how we're going to compete against China. We're always in a better place when we're doing things with our African partners to address real threats. So moving to our main topic, I wanted to chat about this recent series that the Washington Post has been doing on the effects of rising temperatures across the globe, and it's called Two Degrees Celsius Beyond the Limit. And Max, you and your co-author, Chris Mooney, you published a report on Angola back in November 2019 called A Crisis in the Water is Decimating This Once Booming Fishing Town. Well, Africa is one of the places that is most vulnerable to climate change in the world. This vulnerability is further exacerbated by numerous factors, including poverty, poor governance, and a high dependence on natural resources. I was hoping you could just walk us through some of the key judgments to start us off. Like the project's name indicates, we went around the world to different places that are experiencing average temperatures of two degrees Celsius higher than essentially around 100 years ago. And this 
little spot off the coast of southern Angola was one of the places that exhibits the you know highest degree of warming in the world. And what it really exhibits is how a number of you know huge planetary processes like big pressure systems and ocean currents and the winds that they affect um, can all come together and you know shine a focus like a laser on specific parts of the world that will end up seeing big warming even if they aren't places that produce uh, some of the greenhouse gases that contribute to that warm, warming at all. I mean, s southwestern Angola is one of the least developed uh, regions in the world. And so what we saw there were the effects of this warming, which you know can be boiled down to a disappearance of fish, both you know numbers of fish and also species of fish, some of which are moving away and some of which are dying off which, of course, is a death knell for communities that rely on fishing almost entirely for their livelihoods. Well, and what's happening in the town, right, Tombwa, is, is extreme because it's this vast warming hotspot, but it's not uncommon up and down the continent's coast. And so, Nina, I thought you could share how much of what Max is saying resonates with you uh, in Cameroon. I mean, how much are Cameroonians talking about the effects of global warming and climate change on the ability to maintain your livelihoods and to, you know, have a viable ocean commercial sector? The government of Cameroon actually recognizes that there are actually effects of climate change, but unfortunately, um, climate change discourse is not like a high priority in Cameroon. But at the same time, even though it's not a climate change is not a priority. She also recognizes the fact that they could carry out um, solutions that mitigate the effects of climate change. With regards to the oceans, for example, yes, we also have instances of um, many species of fish that have disappeared because um, the mangrove areas on, around our coastal areas where all the fishes come and lay their eggs and everything have been destroyed for, for business reasons. But apart from this, we also have, of course, the illegal fishing that is taking place, which is also affecting all of this. But I think the government is putting in measures, which is not enough, of course, but they have actually recognized that it's actually um, climate, the effects of climate change are actually affecting populations because there are entire communities along the coast who have actually lost their livelihoods, who are mainly fishermen, but are unable to engage in these activities anymore because of this. So basically what the government has done is she's prepared and communicated and maintained um, successive nationally determined contributions, which she intends to achieve. And she's actually working towards participating in Core 26, which is going to be in Glasgow, hopefully, if the coronavirus doesn't uh, change all our plans, as it has already been doing in the past, for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I know that's a good point. This is just an aside, but uh, we've been doing some work uh, that we haven't published yet on how Africans talk about climate change. And, and what you said, Nina, really resonates with me. What, what we found is that governments uh, understand that it is a major threat, uh, but sometimes the way in which governments and publics think about climate change is not in the sort of the banner term of climate change, but really in the effects of what it means for agriculture, of what it means for fishing stocks, uh, of what it means for employment. Whit, I, I want to ask you about 
how does a country like Angola that really doesn't have the capacity to adjust or really adapt to this, I mean, how do they respond? You work on this all the time at CSIS. You also had jobs under President Obama. Like, what's the way forward here? What do countries like Cameroon and Angola, what should they be doing? Well, it, Nina really highlighted how that there are really a number of, of challenges that all have this really horrible positive feedback loop on each other. You have, uh, of course, as we're talking about the specific impacts of climate change, and I, I, I really commend the Post for doing this story, because I, I think it is the idea that there are these sort of really specific impacts for these large global um, processes is really hard to, to understand, but I think this is a great way to, to kind of get at it. But but exacerbating that impact is, you know, decades of exploitive practices uh, and mismanagement, and now compounded by uh, this really large problem of industrial overfishing, largely illegal in nature, largely uh, foreign uh, fleets coming in and and taking fish. So it's you have this really triparty problem that is really devilish to get at. And you can't get at the whole of the problem without addressing the each. And so back to your earlier question about the um, the friends uh, plus plus. Uh, I'm gonna the fog is was that the acronym? See um, see how bad it is. Yeah, the fog, the friends right. of Gulf of Guinea. <laughs> That's right. But that is a great example, uh, you know, of how you can begin to build regional institutions to get at multiple aspects of a problem like this where you have uh, uh, multiple countries coming together, um, supported um, by external partners like the US, to think about security challenges. So we, we talk about piracy as a security challenge, but illegal fishing is also a security challenge, as Nina was just raising. So how do you bring that capacity to begin to deal with things like maritime domain awareness, but also enforcement against violators? Um, but then critically, and I think what maybe is, is lacking in what the frog is doing, um, is to think also about the management capacity that needs to be brought to bear. Effective management is one of the best tools we have in the toolkit uh, in terms of combating the impacts of climate change on fisheries. But there's a huge amount of groundwork that needs to be done there from uh, building up observational capacity, scientific capacity, analysis capacity, and of course, governance capacity. Um, the World Bank has a program uh, right now under their, their broader fisheries program. Um, uh, they have two really supportive fishery development projects in Africa, one focused in Western Africa and one in the um, uh, Southeastern Africa, um, but really nothing in Southwestern Africa. So they have the West African Regional Fisheries Project and the Southwestern Indian Ocean Fisheries Project, um, but there needs to be something similar brought to bear in Southwestern Africa to help build up that, that kind of management and scientific capacity. You can't really, it's hard to enforce um, against illegal fishing um, and support sustainable fisheries if you don't actually know what fish you have in the region. That's a great point. The other dimension here is that for a country like Angola, there's a geopolitics challenge for them because of the, of the countries that are the fleets belong to one of them is China. I think Max, in your article, you also talk about South Korea, but the Angola relationship with China is so critical. Uh, China buys a huge proportion, if not most, of Angola's oil. How does Angola engage with the Chinese around this issue, even if these are private sector Chinese fishing trawlers? How does how does geopolitics play a role? 
Well, the short answer of how Angola engages with China over uh, you know Chinese-owned trawling boats is that they don't, um, and it's not just Angola uh, that is heavily indebted to China and sees most of its trade with China. The same would go for Namibia, which is close to the uh, which is the border that the story I wrote is close to. You know, most of their diamonds are also going to China, and, and the government has very close relations there. So, you know, when we talk about regional cooperation initiatives like what you all were talking about earlier with FOG, or in southwestern Africa with the Benguela Current Commission, um, you know, there's there's the opportunity to come up with lots of plans, and we spoke to members of the commission who had come up with you know, great ideas for how illegal fishing could be curtailed and how the effects of climate change could be mitigated. But none of those ideas would ever be implemented unless, you know, the geopolitical considerations um, somehow changed and, and Angola and Namibia and South Africa, for that matter, felt confident enough to... to stand up to to Chinese interests uh, in a big way, which I don't see happening anytime soon. Well, I wonder if this is where WIT's um, you know, World Bank conversation and, and extending uh, the World Bank program to Southwest Africa could be helpful. I mean, what is your sense, WIT, of when is China engaging in some of these uh, World Bank or presumably UN initiatives? Does that give uh, these countries a better forum to talk to key partners uh, that may not want to hear it? I mean, like what, does that change the dynamics? In general, the idea of empowering countries through knowledge uh, has a lot of potential. And I think to your earlier point about ways in which we can engage uh, with African nations without bringing up China explicitly, yet still impacting the broader geopolitical relationship uh, is through this kind of capacity building and kind of capacity building relationships. So the idea of helping to support fishery management programs, scientific programs that ultimately empower countries like Angola or Namibia or South Africa about uh, through knowledge of their own fisheries and through the idea and understanding of, of how to better manage those fisheries, I think is a way to kind of get at this challenge without directly engaging the issue of China. You know, you, you there's obviously the question of whether or not that's that's just being naive, but I think that providing an opportunity to, to for a nation to have a better understanding of their own resources and the state of their own resources is the first step to having sovereignty over those resources. You can't have sovereignty over your own maritime resources unless you know what those resources are and how to manage them. And by enabling that process, you're enabling the process of, of gaining sovereignty over, over your maritime domain. That's a great suggestion and a great point. Nina, anything from your side? What What are other ways that uh, countries like Angola or Cameroon or Namibia can address this problem uh, either bilaterally or multilaterally? First, most of these countries have to actually acknowledge that this is a major problem because um, a lot of African countries, Angola, Cameroon, do not prioritize um, issues like this. They are more concerned maybe with other kinds of insecurity. But um, these issues, piracy, these are issues that affect the security of any nation countries need to acknowledge um, these issues and prioritize them and actually redirect resources towards um, 
creating or providing solutions to them. It could be working with foreign uh, partners. In the case of Cameroon, a lot of the Ill illegal fishing vessels that we find on our waters are Asian vessels, according to reports. And so you start thinking, how would you work with the Chinese government to come up with solutions for issues that some of them are propagating, for example? So I think um, it's about actually carrying out research, um, trying to identify specifically the areas of intervention and working with uh, winning partners and yeah, the, G the G7++, interesting name, to come up with solutions that are sustainable and that actually um, impact local communities, especially the communities that suffer most from these issues. All right. So wait, tell me if this is a totally simplistic way to think about this, but governments need to first acknowledge the problem, as Nina said, to invest in research so that there's a awareness of what the problem is and how it's affecting uh, fishing stocks and other issues, and then find the right forum, multilateral or bilateral, where a more of a technical conversation can happen that can maybe sidestep the political dimensions. Is that naive? I mean, is that the right way? Or is there other things that you would add into that uh, formula? Um, well, it may be naive, but I think that that's still a valid, it's still a valid approach. I, I like to think about you know, how we enable effective ocean governance in the changing world that we're all facing, right? And, and I think of it as, as being kind of three legs to that stool. You need uh, domain awareness, you need effective management, and you ultimately need sovereignty over the resource to enable effective government by nation or by a collection of nations over a region. And so I think if you think about the problem from each of those perspectives, each of those needs support, right? So you need to be able to support capacity building, scientific capacity building to enable effective management. You need to enable effective regional compacts uh, to support effective governance, and you need to support security initiatives um, uh, to enable better enforcement uh, and, and better domain awareness. So I think you can't get at the problem without addressing each of those. But in my mind, one of the pieces that's been missing has been this idea of scientific capacity and management capacity. And there's a real power, I think, and ownership that comes with understanding and knowing about what you have in your own backyard or your own off, off your own beach and, and understanding how to manage that. And, uh, and with that, um, I think, is, is a pathway to, to, to engagement. Um, and, you know, and quite frankly, um, this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, you know, we, we've been doing a lot of thinking about China and, and how they've been using their distant water fleets. You know, China really is going through kind of what we did in the 90s, which is, you know, we wrecked our domestic fisheries in the 90s and we, we finally got our house in order in terms of how we manage those fisheries. Um, the difference is, and China's doing that now, um, the difference is that we didn't send our fleets abroad to fill that gap. Um, that's what China's done over the last 20 years. They're, they've gone through an explosive growth in their distant water fleets and, and sent those fleets abroad to sort of plunder the world, if you will. Um, but ultimately, that doesn't serve them well either. Um, you know, they're going to be impacted as those fish stocks decline. They're going to be impacted as climate continues to progress. And so to the extent that they are interested in their own self-interest and understanding and supporting and maintaining those, those stocks over the long term, they also need to be part of this dialogue. And they also need to understand that these resources are limited. And uh, sure, right now, over the next decade or so, they can just kind of uh, move where those fleets are and what resources they're exploiting. Um, but ultimately, they're going to have a challenge as well. And so I think starting that conversation in states like Angola and further up the coast uh, in the Gulf of Guinea, I think is a really important place to start the dialogue and empowering those nations with knowledge 
and the ability to manage their own resources. That's great. This is why uh, I just go to you for any of my questions. I can uh, come up with a really simple straw man, and then you come back with a very sophisticated framework. So I appreciate that. Max, let me give you the final word. Is there anything uh, that we missed from the article that's important to, to raise for our audiences? Well, one thing that we haven't discussed here and that I didn't discuss much in the article is the matter of enforcement, which in a way in Angola comes down to patrol boats in the most concrete way. When you're standing there on the coast and you can see way out in the distance a big Chinese or Korean trawling boat that is plundering the pelagic, um, and you are a resident of a, of a fishing town that is being decimated, what you really want is for a patrol boat to go out there and basically report them to the Angolan government and have the Angolan government fine them or whatever, report them to an international body or to the Chinese government. Um, and and we're, we're not really seeing that. So, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's a question of how much time is left in certain pockets of the ocean, like that just off the coast of Tombua, before there really aren't that many fish there at all. And the people who live there have to move on, or, or perhaps there's some kind of ensuing humanitarian crisis. So, you know, what you'd hope to see is, is, is a solution reached sooner than later, uh, and that all of those ideas that are come up with at the World Bank or at the Benguela Current Commission don't just sit there uh, and, and never be used. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point and a, a great place to end our episode. Uh, let me thank everyone for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk uh, in two weeks. Take care. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks. Thanks.